Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Michelle Ford, the Director of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney and a co-host of the channel. Today I'm talking to David Reeve, Honorary Associate Professor at the University of New South Wales. David is the author of To Remain Myself, The History of On Hok Ham, which was published for the Asian Studies Association of Australia by the National University of Singapore Press in 2022. As the book's title suggests, To Remain Myself is a biography of On Hok Ham, a prominent Indonesian historian and public intellectual and also David's close friend. Ong lived through all the great changes in Indonesia's political fortunes of the 20th century, from late colonial times to reformasi. David describes him as a gay, hard-drinking, pork-eating hedonist who from the late 1970s gained a degree of celebrity status through his media presence. But there's a lot more to the story than that. Welcome, David. Thank you very much. David, could you start by telling us how and when you first met Ong and how did your friendship develop? Sure. In 1974 and 75, I was doing part of the research for my PhD on Golkar at Cornell University in upstate New York. And Ong Hok Hum, coincidentally, was then in America in the final year of seven years of working on his PhD on the impact of 19th century Dutch colonialism on Madiun, on the courts and on the peasantry. So he was doing something of a farewell tour of American universities, giving seminars on his thesis, and one of those was the visit to Cornell, where I attended the talk and found it terrific. And I was very lucky in one way because there weren't very many Indonesian scholars at Cornell there, even though that was the reason I'd gone there mainly. They were away on sabbatical. And so when there were guests... The university gave me the money to take them out in the evening for dinner. So that was very nice. And so uh, I entertained Ong for dinner and we just became friends from that time. I saw him when I visited Indonesia in the 70s and early 80s. But then in the 1980s, I was appointed to the University of Indonesia to help in founding the Australian Studies Program. And I was teaching part of my load in the history department. So Ong and I became close colleagues in the history department for three and a half years, 1984, 85, 86 and 87. So that really solidified the friendship. We were in each other's houses two or three times a week, attending all sorts of the things that Jakarta has to offer, films, seminars, exhibitions and so on. And so by 1985, we were good, firm friends and we remained friends for 32 years or so. And when did you decide to write his biography? 
Well, both being in a history department at the one time in the mid-80s, we occasionally said in joke, he'd say, you must write my biography one day, and I'd say, I must write your biography one day. So it was sort of semi-serious, partly a joke and partly a serious idea. But then in late 2001, uh, Ong had a severe stroke. Now, Ong was someone who loved to roam Jakarta, the urban bohemian wandering Jakarta from newspaper office to newspaper office, from university to university, from embassy reception to embassy function. And so it was a real tragedy. It was a lion in a cage. He was stuck in this wheelchair, severely impacted by the stroke, and deeply bored a lot of the time. I had sabbatical in 2002, and I was trying to think of a topic that would allow me to visit him a lot. And it shows how slow I am. It took a while for the idea to congeal, but finally I realized I should not look for a study topic that would allow me to visit Ong. Ong should be the study topic. And so the old idea, the old vague idea of a biography started in 2002 because of him being in a stroke and me wanting to visit him, I thought it would entertain him and it would be a very worthwhile thing to do. It must have been quite challenging, though, in those circumstances. It was. I mean, he'd had a severe stroke and on some days I barely understood what he said. I asked, for example, what his mother's name was. This is a pretty fundamental fact. But even though he said it three times with increasing frustration, I couldn't understand it. Then he'd try to grab my pen and write, but his writing was bad before his stroke, so you can imagine what it was like afterwards. So I just had to think, well, if it's important, I'll get it from somewhere. And if it's not important, then it doesn't matter. So you can see that some of the sessions were grueling. Others, where he had more energy, were a delight. But overall... It was a very worthwhile project because what I started in 2002, I continued to refine on shorter visits up to his death in 2007. So I think he was delighted that the project was happening, even though it was deeply difficult for him and embarrassing and heartrending for me to see what he was going through. Now, in the first chapter of the book, you paint a picture of his childhood in a prominent Peranakan household in Surabaya. Can you explain to our listeners what it was like living in that house and in that community? Well, it was very traditional in a way in that people did things the way they'd done them for a long time. Uh, there were a lot of Chinese customs and customary practices. But on the other hand, it had a modern side because the, from the start of the century, the Peranakan community had been tending to divide into two lanes or two orientations. And one part took the Dutch road, in the phrase of Ong's later mentor, the Sinologist William Skinner, and they identified increasingly strongly with the Dutch language, Dutch education, and the Dutch colonial system. The other mainstream developing at that time were identifying with Chinese nationalism, galvanized by the rise of nationalism in the late 19th century in China, and particularly with the birth of the New Republic from 1911. And they underwent a process of re-Sinification, so they're identifying much more with discussions of Confucianism, relearning, learning Chinese, identifying with Chinese developments. 
Ong's family was very much in the group that had took the Dutch road rather than the Chinese road. So his um, parents had Dutch names. His mother was Lies. His father was Klaus. His elder sister and brother were Freddy and Olga. And he was known at home as Hans. So it was a combination of Dutch modern life with their breakfasts of bread and ham and sausage and butter and their Dutch food in the evening and uh, traditional Chinese ways, particularly at Chinese festivals, and also the Peranakan food that had grown up in the last couple of hundred years. So this was a family that was basically adjusted towards and approving of the Dutch colonial machine. So it was a quiet and fairly ordered existence for those first nine years of his life from 1933 until the great disruptions of the Japanese occupation. Mm, And I wanted to ask you about that. What was Ong's experience of World War II? Uh, World War II was, for the Ong family, middle class, a little bit of money living off his mother's dowry, warehouses of old furniture and porcelain and pots and pans which they sold on the black market. It was exciting for a a young boy, frightening, uh, because their world was almost turned upside down. The Dutch colonial machinery that they'd admired and felt themselves to be really a part of was dismantled, the men and then later some of the women and children, to concentration camps. So the top level of society was overthrown and replaced by the Japanese. So these were deeply shocking events and uh, the family was hoping deeply through all the Japanese occupation uh, for the return of the Dutch. But as to how they fared... They were very lucky compared to so many of the Javanese who suffered the privations and even torture, sex, slavery, famine, disease. They tended to float through a comfortable middle-class family that didn't attract too much attention from anywhere, and they sailed through relatively easily. So there were many shocks and surprises and occasional fears but they didn't undergo the physical suffering and the shortages that the broader Indonesian populace suffered. And you've mentioned there, of course, that his family was looking forward to the reinstatement of the Dutch rule, but of course that didn't happen. How did Ong deal with the coming of independence? His family, about the time of the Lingajati Agreement, when that was signed, it started to occur to their family that the Republic might in some way win. They didn't quite know how, but it looked like it was possible. So from early 47, say, so they were thinking over different strategies. And then in 49, the negotiations took place through which uh, the acknowledgement of Indonesian sovereignty was organised so that the Dutch would recognise Indonesia as an independent country, though they retained a big economic stake. So there was a period of several years where where families thought over what they would do if Indonesia became independent. For some, it was emigration. For Chinese families, they looked at where they could go. And Ong was in a Dutch school, so everyone around him and his school friends' families were all thinking, would they stay? Would they go back to Europe? Holland, wasn't Holland too cold? For the Chinese, they thought, should they go to China? 
as some members of the family did. Others went to America. Others went to South America. Uh, as I mentioned in the book, one of the most important impressions on Ong were an inspiring teacher. He had an inspiring history teacher called Brother Rosario, and he taught history in an inspiring way, which certainly stimulated Ong's historical interest and put him on the path to becoming a historian. And so many people have had their lives changed by an inspiring teacher. Ong was one. But he was doubly inspired by Brother Rosario. Brother Rosario was obviously seeing his students in the early 50s unsure of where they should go, what they should become. And he taught them a form of civics and urged them, wherever you end up, be the best possible citizen that you can possibly be. And that struck Ong very keenly. And in about 52, 53, he was determined to be a good Indonesian. And he started falling in love with Indonesia and collecting Indonesian friends. Unlike the rest of his family, who remained, like many of the Peranakan, relatively distant from and unenthusiastic about the new republic. So I'd say about 53, Ong had made the conscious decision to be a good Indonesian citizen. It was an interesting time, though, for a Chinese person to decide to be a good Indonesian citizen, wasn't it? Can you walk us through that part of the story? Well, yes, there was there were questions of citizenship. One of the problems at the time was that uh, China still regarded all overseas Chinese as citizens of China. So, in some ways, they'd been regarded as Dutch only a few, only fifteen years before, and they were still regarded as Chinese by the Chinese government, and yet they were also regarded as Indonesian by the Indonesian government, unless they'd specifically renounced their citizenship. So, citizenship was a burning issue at the time, and everyone had to think about it. I think, and it was one of the topics that was discussed at the Bandung Conference in 1955, where Chou Enlai came from China wanting to help the Indonesian government uh, sort out the issue of its citizens. So there were times when, from, say, 1947 on to the middle of the 1950s, it was an issue of which of these competing identities to choose. And Ong chose the Indonesian identity enthusiastically, like some other young Peranakan, but not the majority. Hmm, that must have been a harder choice to sustain in the 60s. It was, because up till about the early 1960s, things were basically going fine for someone who was a high school student, then a student at university. But from the early 1960s, as we know, Sukarno's guided democracy new system started to fare not very well. Well, there was the great success of having Indonesian Irian returned, Dutch New Guinea returned to the Republic. So that was a very successful campaign, which produced a mood of nationalism. But there were two other things. The economic situation was getting increasingly 
not under control, inflation spiralling increasingly out of control. So the economic situation was worsening. And then secondly, the political situation was worsening with the mounting competition between left and right. And President Sakano at the apex of the triangle, balancing the forces on the left and the right. So from 1963 on, there was deep political division economy looking as though it might collapse. So it was becoming a very troubled project. Only 10 years after the Yang Ong had decided enthusiastically to become an Indonesian, now it was looking at what is Indonesia? What is it going to become? Might it fall apart? Might foreign powers invade? These are all things on people's minds, that there might be a balkanization. It, It might not even continue into the future. If it was to continue, what would be its future? Would it be left-wing or right-wing? People couldn't tell. And where was Ong in 65? Ong had started in law at the University of Indonesia in 1955, but that was because of family pressure. He'd wanted to study history, but for Chinese families like his, really it was medicine, law and business. So he'd gone for law, thinking that perhaps it might be a stepping stone to a diplomatic career. Well, eventually he more or less dropped out of law and then he started again in 1960 uh, as a history student. So by the time 1965 came around, he was a senior history student in the Department of History at the University of Indonesia. He had a lot of foreign friends, particularly from Cornell University, so he spent a lot of his time going back and forth from Jakarta to Central and East Java sometimes accompanying Western scholars, like, for example, Ruth McVeigh he was taking to uh, Central and East Java in early 1965. So he's a friend and habitué of foreign scholars and their research assistant. So he was getting a very close-up view of the tensions and hostilities that were developing in Central and East Java. And in the events of later 65, was he affected directly or did they not affect him so much? Ong was deeply affected. He had a mental breakdown and then was jailed, I think, as a result of it. What had happened was that during the 1963, 64, 65, there were two sets of pressures were exerting themselves upon Ong, partly the political pressures as he saw the deepening rivalry and antagonisms and even hatred between his friends. Ong liked to go to all camps, Islam, communists, nationalists, particularly the nationalist youth, but he liked to be visiting all sides. So the deepening polarisation and the rivalries and bitternesses preyed a great deal on his mind. And uh, letters from Herb Feith or Herb Feith's articles on on guided democracy at the time filled him with a sense of doom. He thought the system was heading for some sort of terrible disaster. So those fears and tensions were preying upon him in 64 and 65, and also the issues of his sexuality. He was 30 in 1963, and he'd never really had a love affair. He'd never had any, uh, really any substantial emotional or sexual experience. So it was the struggling with issues about his sexuality made him feel even worse. 
So the two issues, personal sexuality and politics, put him under very great strain increasingly, 1963, 64, 65. In December 1965, learning about the massacres that were occurring in central and east Java, he went to east Java to check and see if his family was okay. Now he saw terrible sights there. Most of what I learned about those sites were other people told me he was unable to speak about them himself. The effect was too deep. But when he came back to Jakarta in early January 1966, he was clearly on the edge of his sanity. Speaking to other Indonesians, speaking to foreign reporters like Frank Parmos and people like that, they could see that he was barely holding on. He felt an amazing sympathy from the underdog and he became pro the Communist Party, virtually at the stage where it was being banned. He chose it at the very last possible stage it was possible and he started shouting, long live the Communist Party, in the streets. A lot of people, hundreds of thousands of people were arrested in March 1966 and one can certainly understand that if he was shouting long live the Communist Party in the streets just about the time it was to be banned forever, he was caught up and swept into a camp and was jailed for six months from March to about the end of September 1966. So when he came out, that was one of the lowest points of his life the mental breakdown brought on by the sexual tensions and the political tensions. He suffered far less than the the, the hundreds of thousands killed and imprisoned for much longer, but uh, it still was a deep suffering for him. So not long after that, Ong headed off to the US, to Yale, and with a stretch in Europe in the early 70s as well. How did these years abroad shape him as a person? There were already ideas he should go to America in the 60s. He'd got to know so many of the leading scholars, Dan Lev, Bill Skinner, Benedict Anderson, Ruth McVeigh, Herb and Betty Feith. He was already their friend and they'd had the idea that he should be helped out with a scholarship to Melbourne in the case of Feith possibly to Ithaca in the case of Ben Anderson and possibly to Yale in the case of Dan Lev. That idea became more urgent when he was in jail when they thought they'd need to get him out when he was released, both for his own mental health but also to try and keep him safe in case there were re-arrests. But he still hadn't finished his undergraduate degree, even though he'd been at university for 13 years since joining. Uh, I love the fact that one of Indonesia's greatest scholars went to university for 13 years without completing his undergraduate degree. So the important thing after getting out of jail was to write his undergraduate thesis, his thesis on the fall of the East Indies, which he did, and then he could go off to America thought to be best to send him to Yale where Dan Lev was because Ithaca had such dangerous people as Benedict Anderson, Ruth McVeigh and Fred Bunnell who'd written the Cornell paper. So I think to go to America in the late 60s and early 70s 
was a transformative experience because the campuses were in turmoil, as was a lot of uh, American society. It was the counterculture. It was uh, flower power. It was make love, not war. And apart from those, many substantial new social movements, particularly the women's liberation, black power, and then gay lib after that. So this was a society in quite a deal of tumult. In the year he went there, people like Martin Luther King was assassinated. The students were shot at Kent State not many months later, people being killed on campus. Campuses were a fire. So in a way, I think that was terrifically beneficial for Ong Hok Hum in that the terrible problems of his own withered away compared to the great events that were happening in the society he went to. I think it was transformative and deeply enabling to him and deeply health-giving to be part of such a society in turmoil and transition. It washed his problems away. Of course, it was a time when sexual liberation, so for the first time ever able to talk to other people, friends and academics, he became more confident about his sexuality. So that problem was uh, also much more resolved in a sense. It wasn't an ongoing agonizing edition of an identity, but an encouraging environment in which to say, okay, this is me, I'm Ong Hock, I'm, I'm gay, and that's how it is, and that's how it's going to be. The third element, I'd say, was the laying of the basis for the later career. Now, Ong never wrote a big, published a big book like other famous Indonesian historians did, but his work in America and Europe, his great diligent research in the archives over these years, I think uh, allowed him to gain massive familiarity with Javanese society in the 19th and 20th centuries and allowed him to become as he, uh, the later correspondent who wrote often in Tempo and Compass and later the Jakarta Post. I think these years laid down the intellectual foundations of the later successful career as a public intellectual, which resumed after his return to Indonesia in 1975. And it must have been quite a shock, both on an intellectual level and a personal level, to return to Indonesia at that time. How did that transition happen for Ong? What did he struggle with in those years? You know, for a lot of political prisoners... When they came out of jail, like Pramudya, they found it almost impossible to comprehend the new world that they came into, Sahato's military new order. It was so thoroughly different in its politics, its economic policies, its underlying conceptions about society and about people. Uh, the change from the mid-60s to the mid-70s was immense the restructuring of political life, the restructuring of intellectual life. The political prisoners found it when they came out, and I think it was very similar with Ong. He found it a terrible shock to return in 75 to the new order Indonesia under Sahato, so different it had been made in the seven years that he was in America. So he found it surreal. He thought he was living in a farce. He found it very difficult to adjust to. I think he spent about three or four years 
wrestling with what he was to do in Indonesia, how he was to make money, what sort of career he was to have. He'd made the real decisions. He was to be a university lecturer and uh, to write in the press. But he was he alternated between feelings of being glad to be back and feeling horrified by the way things were conducted around him, both in society at large, in politics, and within the university. I would say he had a transition period till the late 70s, which coincided with this, which was largely brought about, I think, by his return to the press in 77, 78, and he was soon writing a lot in compass and in tempo, and he had a photo in the paper and he had a byline, and so people recognised him in the street. Sometimes celebrities recognised him and knew who he was, and he found that deeply gratifying, and he started seeing the sort of role that he could have in Indonesian society for the next 25 years of his life. And that transitioned into what you describe as his best years, the years from the mid to the late 1980s. What were those years like for Ong? They were years of terrific fun. He liked to have fun. He was respected. He was mostly liked. He was valued. He was valued in all sorts of circles. He was valued at the university because he was one of the, frankly, very few lecturers in Indonesian history departments at the time who had a PhD at all, and he had one from a prestigious American university, so he was a senior scholar at the university. But secondly, because of his writing in the press, he was very well known in press circles, and he spent part of his day dropping in at press offices, moving from one press office to another, very well known there, sometimes working at the tempo offices, sometimes writing there, sometimes just, he knew the editors, he knew the senior journalists, they were all his friends. And then a third section of society was the world of the international reporters and the embassies. Now, they're busy collecting information about the political scene in Indonesia. Can you imagine what a find Ong was to them? Here he was, knowledgeable about the past, knowledgeable about the present, because he also wrote on Indonesian politics, and someone who'd been in the newspaper offices earlier in the day, so he knew what all the hot stories were of the day, not only the ones that were printed, but he knew the stories that uh, the editors dared not print. And he enjoyed a whiskey or two and became more and more indiscreet as the night went on. So he blabbed. After a while, he would become incoherent as he grew older, but that was the price. There were a number of foreign journalists who also tended to become incoherent, and there were not a few diplomats, I think, who also tended to become, as these evenings went on. But they were richly enjoyable, and Ong was something of an adornment to the diplomatic scene. He was well known, at, for example, the Australian and uh, New Zealand embassies through his Australian connections, but he had so many American friends. The American embassies liked him there. The European embassies, particularly the Dutch embassy and the French embassy, they also liked him. The Singapore embassy also liked him. So he had a terrific social repertoire to call on, and he had friends across Jakarta in the arts, 
in academe, in politics, in journalism. And so it created a rich life. And the most important element of that, I think, in the 1980s was that he got his house, his dream house, the the odd house in various pavilions inspired by a Balinese design, and uh, he became a host. He became a party goer, a party giver as well as goer, a dinner giver and a host. And so he would have these evenings, maybe 12 people round the perfect crockery, the specially cooked meals, the wines and the whiskey flowing, ambassadors, international scholars, senior journalists, PhD students, and just friends that he picked up when he travelled by bus. They'd all sit there having one of the best seminars you could have in the world. So they were good years. Mm. It's interesting because the first thing you mentioned there was his status at the university. Eventually that became a problem, didn't it? There were a few senior academics who disdained the bureaucratic hurdles that academics had to go through promotion. There's a system of many grades, 3A, 3B, 3C, 3D, up to the fives and so on, and it was uh, quite a procedure to be promoted from one level to the other. Naong, like some of his, a couple of his friends, disdained that. He hated bureaucracy. He couldn't be bothered. He had the status anyway in the sense of people's recognition, so he couldn't be bothered organising the formal status of organising his promotions from one level to another. So Ong was in the odd situation of having high status in people's eyes, but formally he was a very low-level employee because he didn't really rely on his university salary. It was his salary from writing in the press and attending seminars and so on that was his main income. So formally he was at a low level in the university and the regulations are quite clear. Low-level academics have to retire at the age of 55. So Ong wasn't expecting it. He expected there'd be a deal. He'd had a lot of special deals in his house, so there are a lot of people who liked him and given him a helping hand. This time it wasn't forthcoming. His career ended at the age of 55, his formal career at the university, and so he had to look around for other things for then for the last period of his life, mainly during the 1990s. Hmm, Must have been quite a shock. But, of course, he didn't stop with his intellectual pursuits. And as you explain in the book, his interests were primarily in the little people, the villagers, the homeless, the gangsters. How did this interest shape his contribution as a public intellectual? I think his contribution as a public intellectual was to focus on exactly the people you mentioned, the peasants, the homeless, the people who lived on the borders of society, the jago, the bandit-like figure who sometimes oppresses the people and sometimes is their champion. He always tried to get people to see how it, why people were in that situation and what it was like for them to be in that situation. He tried to get people to see it from the inside. So, uh, for example, he took a number of Javanese traditional peasant beliefs and he showed how that these apparently rural backward superstitions actually made sense, were quite rational to the peasants uh, as they saw them. 
So he personally had a great sympathy and empathy for those groups in society, and I think he uh, communicated that through his writings. Remember, it was the New Order Society, very top-down, very hierarchical, very directing, very telling people at the bottom what they had to do. He was the reverse, I think, in the sense that he wanted people to listen to the, the marginalised and the lower levels peoples of society and see what they wanted to do rather than tell them what they wanted to do. Looking back at Ong's life, it's like he's a perfect study of intersectionality. He's a-religious, he's from a minority community, he started life steeped in the culture of the coloniser and he was gay. How do you think these different elements of his identity came together to shape his life? I think although each of those elements provided problems for him, problems that he had to solve, he eventually sensed that they led to a richness of personality and a richness of outlook and a richness of topics that he could talk and write about. These elements had to be brought together before they almost tore him apart, as they did in his mental breakdown and jailing of 66. But I think that with his intelligence, the fact that he was very intelligent and self-aware and didn't indulge in romantic self-delusions, the fact that he was humorous and funny and could look at things from a distance and have that distancing towards himself and his own problems, I think he was able to call on those, the aspects of his personality, which he'd luckily got. He was different from his sister and brothers. They were much more conventional. They often wondered, how did we get this odd one in our bunch? Somehow he'd been born with a collection of personal qualities intelligence, humour, reflection, distancing, able to see through myths and illusions. And although it was a long and painful journey through the 60s and 70s, he was able, with the help of friends and lovers, to mobilise those resources to bring all those sides of intersectionality into a, a rich mix other people no doubt would have failed along the way. We see so many Chinese Indonesians who found the tensions so great they had to go overseas. They finally left. He didn't. He stayed on and he made a success of it. I think, in short, by utilising those qualities he was born with, deliberately calling on them to make an amalgam of all those different aspects of his personality. This brings us in a nice circle back to your introductory chapter where you say that Ong chose Indonesia again and again. Given the complexities of his life, the challenges that the New Order posed, why do you think this was his decision? In 75, he finished his PhD. He was a fairly rare bird, an Indonesian intellectual with a PhD in history. There were, or at least he believed there were, I think there were, opportunities for teaching positions around the world, perhaps in Holland, perhaps in Australia, perhaps in America. So he did consciously choose to go back to Indonesia. I think that decision he'd made back in his early 20s, also he didn't want to go back on it, but I think he thought after the struggles he'd gone through in the 60s and 70s, he thought it was the right decision. He'd fallen in love with Indonesia. 
Certainly that term is not too uh, strong. During the 60s, he fell in love with Javanese culture, both its court Priyai variant and its village Abangan variant. He was in love with the Javanese culture and the Javanese people and with the Indonesian people more generally. That love had suffered quite a few trials in the 60s and 70s, but basically I think by 75 he could see that there would be a role for him in Indonesia and so he'd go on with the choice he made 20 years earlier and try and make a success of it. And fortunately for him, it worked. Before we wrap up, David, I'd like to ask you to take a step back and reflect on how Ong's work, but also your own work on Ong, fits into the literature on Chinese Indonesians. Thank you. I think it fits in well with many of the themes of work on Chinese Indonesians, but it extends the existing work. There are lots of Chinese Indonesian biographies and memoirs and they tend to skate over the childhood, often with rose-tinted glasses for those later years of Dutch rule. I think Ong's story, the the vigour and honesty with which he told it to me, gives a, a new slant on what it was like to live in the Peranakan communities uh, in the 20s, in that case he's remembering things his mother has told them, right through the 20th century. So I think it adds new dimensions. It also adds new dimensions because he didn't just live the life of a particular Chinese-Indonesian. It was one of the themes of his writings. So in the 50s, he became a research assistant to the famous sinologist Bill Skinner, who was researching the Chinese in Indonesia, and Ong became his research assistant. So his first job was researching the history of the Chinese Indonesia. So there's not only his own personal interesting life, which I think is told in, thanks to him, greater detail and depth than any of the other works, it's that he was also a commentator and writer about that theme from his first foray into the press in the late 1950s. So he wrote on that theme now and again. It was one of the many themes he wrote on up till 2000. So he wrote on the Indonesian-Chinese theme for nearly 50 years. So here in this book, we've got the unique combination of someone who lives the life, but very consciously reflects on it and writes about it, describes it, analyzes it, and makes recommendations about it. So it seems to me this is an extension of a solid body of existing literature. And thanks, Duong, a very vivid and interesting one. Well, thanks so much, David, for sharing Ong's life with us. It's such a fascinating story. David Reeve, thanks for joining us on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss To Remain Myself, the history of Ong Hok Ham. You've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you enjoyed this episode, you can listen to hundreds of other conversations about Southeast Asia-related books on the channel. You can download or stream these interviews free of charge from the New Books Network website or subscribe through your favourite podcast app. I look forward to joining you again before too long for another conversation about a new book in Southeast Asian Studies.